You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. this episode of Popcorn Ronin, we're actually going to do something different, something that I've actually wanted to do for quite a long while. If you are, in my opinion, a real movie fan, you listen to audio commentaries on movies. I, It's just one of those things that I've talked to so many people who don't, and I feel that they're missing out on the experience because whether it is an audio commentary that is from the actors or from the director, which is more often the case, or, or especially the writers, you get an insight on what is going on in the movie that you otherwise would not get. Sometimes it's an insight that will, I don't want to say ruin some of it, but it takes those rose-colored glasses off so that you can appreciate the work that went into it. I don't suggest that people listen to a commentary before watching the movie, but certainly after you've watched it, listen to that commentary so that you can get some insight into what happened, what whether it was on the set, pre-production, whatever. And it really adds a lot more depth to the film thereafter. Now, we have talked about this, and again, it's something that both Vince and I enjoy listen to commentary so really wanted to do one well a movie came out that we have so much love for and we've talked about it in the past we've talked about it on our comic book informer podcast and we have kept up with the comics more so vince than i so we thought why not do one for guardians of the galaxy so this is going to be a a longer podcast episode obviously but also be going to require some interaction not require but if you want to get the full experience so pull out your dvd or blu-ray or digital download of guardians of the galaxy and queue it up to immediately prior to the earth that comes up on your screen so get it to the black screen right before earth right before the movie starts and we'll pause well, you pause. We're not actually going to pause. <laughs> Get it all ready. And when you're ready, hit play. So with that, we're going to hit play and start our commentary. Now, like I said, we are not just going to be talking about the the movie per se. And I know that I listened to the audio commentary. I'm assuming you have as well. Oh, absolutely. And it actually was a very, very good one. And that was with uh, the director, James Gunn, who also did some of the writing on the show. And you get so much more out of the movie after listening to the the commentary from the director, at least I found. I've listened to a lot of commentaries on a ton of movies, and I found this one to be really enjoyable. So it is one that I would suggest others listen to as well. Yeah, James Gunn is... A great guy. I'm really glad he finally got his shot at making a big movie because he's he's one of those guys that just loves film and loves movies and loves the art form. And 
Like it's actually interesting. I was listening to a podcast with him. It was one of the nerdest podcasts before this movie came out where he said he actually retired from directing movies because, you know, he'd done some low budget stuff that critically successful, but you know, it wasn't his career wasn't going in the direction he wanted it to. So he retired and then a week later got a phone call from his agent saying, Hey, Marvel wants to talk to you. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm retired, but how many times in my life am I going to have a chance to talk with Marvel about doing one of their movies? He figured it was just a formality. They wanted to bring some people in. There was no way they were going to hire this goof who had never done a movie with a budget bigger than $8 million to direct Guardians of the Galaxy. Imagine his surprise a couple weeks later when he got the phone call saying that they wanted him to do Guardians of the Galaxy. The thing is, is that Guardians was really – was not nearly as popular at the time. I mean, when you're looking at – the comic book success, yeah, it's doing okay, and it's been around for a bloody long time. So it's one of those where it kind of ran for a while, disappeared, came back, and, and you'd get a lot of the cosmic stuff happening in a variety of other comic books. But it wasn't really their uber-successful IP that they kept going back to when they needed money. So to give the opportunity to him to to work on this, I don't feel was as big a risk. And the reward was immense when compared to that risk. So that's what we've seen from Marvel for all of their films that honestly, pretty much every film they've made has been a risk in one way or another. And they've done a good job as we've seen, especially this year between James Gunn and the Russo brothers on Winter Soldier of just picking the right people and letting them make the movie. Like, that's one of the things that uh, Gunn said. He's like, for a movie with $150 million or whatever the budget was, he hardly ever heard from the producers. Like, they would check it out and be like, okay, do your thing. They stayed out of his way and let him actually make the movie, which is very different from a lot of blockbusters, as we've seen from uh, other studios. And if we could get Fox to start doing that <laughs> with the Marvel IPs that they own, maybe we can get some better movies than the crap that we saw with the last Spider-Man iteration and such. Yeah, that was actually Sony, but yes. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry. The um, the the starting scene here, it, Gunn talks about this a lot as well with the the young actor and whatnot. It's 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 a it's a device that you see in movies where they have that split back to the past and whatnot. What I found super interesting is when he was talking about this, when you're looking at the Marvel logo appearing and how big a shift it had in the audience's perception of what was going on to split between the past and the present of the characters. And in all honesty, it's not something that I actually would have thought that much about, but apparently it made a huge difference in how the audience was able to relate with that shift in the 26 years later thing. Yeah. It's not something you notice because we got the finished version. Like I would imagine seeing you know, the earlier version without that split, you would notice the difference because I can at least imagine that now. Yeah. The biggest thing with this movie, and we got it right at the very beginning when um, he's listening to his, his Walkman, but also in a few moments when he's going to turn it back on. I cannot say enough about the soundtrack to this movie. Oh, yeah. The, he, he talks about also making sure that they didn't just use the biggest songs of the time, but also others that 
that were successful, just not as insanely successful, but iconic of the, that time as well. And you you notice it, that the music in this movie is unbelievable. It's just such a perfect soundtrack. And the manner in which it was integrated into the movie, uh, by way, obviously, of the, um, the, the, the Walkman, but also just... You, you you get it at different points as well. It's just so perfectly integrated into the movie and works so beautifully. And it's something that so many movies get wrong yeah. of that, you know, the soundtrack more than anything else is what sets the tone for your film. It's what it's what gives the scenes a lot of their emotion. You can have the best actors in the world delivering the most fantastic dialogue ever written, but if the music sucks, it's going to come across flat. Yeah. And because we know, we get to know the importance of the music for him and that it is that, that tie throughout the entire movie to his mother, it actually adds that layered depth to it and further integrates it into the movie and makes it all make sense. I honestly, I can't think of the last movie I've seen that did that masterful job of integrating the soundtrack into the movie. And you're probably looking at like some Tarantino stuff for that level of it being integrated yeah. because here the movie or the movie, the music is a character. Yeah. It's not just background. It's, it's a fundamental part of the movie, especially like this scene right here yeah. with the logo popping up and like the lighthearted music right off the bat in this movie, it sets the tone. It well, lets you know, this isn't what you're used to. This is going to be more fun than your usual big blockbuster well, not just that, but it's, it's it, it pulls the rug out from you from that first scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing the, him losing his mother, and then now all of a sudden he's dancing and singing into rat things. <laughs> so it changes dramatically and kind of lets you know that you can relax. It's not all going to be making you cry kind of things. The, some of the outtakes of him dancing with that skeleton <laughs> where he's putting its leg up and everything was hysterical. I'm assuming, of course, you, again, you've gone through all of the extras with the, the deleted scenes and stuff too. Yeah, and it really gives you an appreciation for how amazing Chris Pratt is. Oh, God, like, cause, yeah. Because he was almost a nobody before this movie, and now he's one of the biggest stars around. Like He was, he was the chubby guy from Parks and Recreation, which... I enjoy the show, and I can have to say, every best part of that show are the scenes he's in. Right. Like you, you hear all this like behind the scenes stuff, and like all the cast and crew talking. That every time he just improvs something, it's the funniest damn thing that show has. Like there are so many great scenes that just can't make the show because it's not suitable for TV. But he is just brilliant with his comedic timing and all, all those small little things that really makes him work as a comedic actor, but we also see here there's more to him than just that. Yeah. Okay, let's actually toss it comic book side now in terms of the character of Star-Lord. Now, you've, again, kept up with this a hell of a lot more than I have. So, just going to toss it to you to talk briefly about what's happening with the character now in the comic books as it says because there is the not just the guardians of the galaxy series that's running now but also the actual star lord series that's running now mm-hmm. well when we're talking about star lord we're basically just talking about the last couple of years because there was a major shift 
in the writing and the backstory of the character a couple years ago. Not a full retcon per se, but definitely it's not the same Star-Lord that had been in the comics previously. You could tell they were just kind of trying to line up the characterization in the comics with the characterization in the movie, which they get a lot of criticism for. But honestly, you just want to have the characters that people know best and like available. Yeah. So in the comics, you know, he's the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy. He's the son of Jason, the emperor of the Spartax Empire. And he's half human, half Spartax. And he really hates his father because it's very similar to what we see here in the movie of his father abandoned his mother and him on Earth. And in the comics, it's a little more kind of in your face because the Spartax enemies actually come to Earth, the Badoon, and kill his mother. So it's not just abandonment. It's also leaving them to die and to, and not know what to do. So he really pushes back against his father, and that's why he creates the Guardians, like this renegade group, that he just wants to try and make sure nobody else has to go through what he did. So he tries to make people's lives better at the same time fighting back against his father and everything he represents. So it makes him a a rogue, like Han Solo type character in that way, which is very different from what we've seen here in the movie. I'm going to assume that his father in the film continuity is going to be a little more important than the Spartax Emperor from what we saw at the end of Guardians. But it's still the same concept of the character, just with some slightly different backstory. Okay, yeah. The the whole father thing in the comic book... See, again, because of how I've read these, and I have read some of the older stuff, not just the ones that you had suggested I read for the, uh, the comic book conformer podcast, but some of the other ones I had read as well. And I like this story better when I felt that he was just, you know, human. Not to be mm-hmm. not to be racist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we're gonna get some bad emails from the Spartax Empire. But I I liked it when he was just human, and it made more sense with the um, with being able to relate to him and stuff. The moment it's like, oh no, he's half human or whatever, and that's why he can do all these other things. It kind of was like, ah, oh, that. I, I keep going back to it. Feels like lazy writing. Just let's just make him half human and it's a cliche kind of thing to put to put in and i just i don't know i didn't i didn't like that quite as much see because in his earlier interpretation of the comics he was a full human like he was a space explorer and he was experimented on and like it fundamentally changed his dna so that he was still half spartax but it wasn't by birth it was just through you know alien technology right and the this whole William Shatner nailing anybody that's a different color thing. <laughs> I initially was like, I don't know. I, I, I we saw so much of that already with, especially the the, the reinterpretation mm-hmm. of Star Trek, and especially because we get um, what's her name Zoe Saldana in this one as well. Yeah, I immediately went to that, and it was like, ah, oh, that's a cliche I could have done with as well. Yeah, and it just seems out of place with the tone of the rest of the movie because it's really that only sci-fi cliche that's really noticeable here though it does set up the jackson pollock oh, later on so that's when i was like okay all right that's it was worth it for that <laughs> <laughs> and then here we have michael rooker who man james gunn has got so much respect for this guy 
because mm-hmm. he almost every scene that you see him in, Rook or um, Gun pops up with compliment after compliment about working with him. And I didn't realize just how much he'd work with him in the past. It was every movie he's had, he's been in it. Yeah, and he's played a different type of character in every single one of those movies. And even as Gunn says, though, like he's always had a certain edge to him and been like the angry guy, which we have here. But he also lets Rooker kind of play up his comedy chops in here. And it it's a fantastic performance. The thing is, is that when you get this first scene, I don't know about you, and I like James, uh, Michael Rooker, but you get this first scene and it was like, that doesn't feel like good casting there. It doesn't seem like it's mm-hmm. going to fit with this character that's going to be a real hard-nosed bastard. But then later on you realize that's not what he is by any stretch of the imagination to the point of periodically you know, letting Peter Quill get away with crap that he knows isn't right. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of letting him go because he has that slightly soft side. Once you realize that, that he is the psychopath that does slaughter a great many people but he kind of has this funny side with his little troll dolls and stuff the little mini figurines that he keeps with him on the bridge then it was like okay yeah the casting was was really good for him then and then here sorry go ahead yeah i was say speaking of casting here we have lee pace as ronan and it's so disappointing because lee pace does a phenomenal job playing this character but just like every other Marvel movie with the exception of Thor, they don't give the villain enough character development because the job Lee Pace is doing with the writing he's been given is phenomenal, but I know it could have been so much more. Yeah, but how much character development are you going to get for this guy? There's no story arc. There's no character development arc for him. He's just a bad person that wants to destroy this planet. Which is the same as every other Marvel villain we've had. (laughs) Which Which is what's disappointing. Like, As we see when we're talking in the comic books, Marvel has some of the best villains out there. And to turn them almost entirely into these one-dimensional characters, like that is what killed Thor the Dark World for me is what they did with Malekith. Malekith, especially with Christopher Eccleston as the actor, could have been mind-blowing. But they just made him a generic, wants-to-kill-everybody villain. But who – okay. So who else could they have put here then? Because they're not going to slap in Thanos already for something no. like this. They're going to no, be you, building. You could up. have used Ronan. You could have done the same thing. Just I don't give him a little more presence. Like it, 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 he has such an impact every time he's on the screen. I just would have liked something more, something different. Right. No, well, I won't disagree with you with that. But again, I, I don't see that there's that much more that they necessarily could have done. This freaking scene with the baby, with Rocket, <laughs> sliming the baby, makes me laugh every time I see it. But yeah, there's only so much that I think that they could have done. I Again, I, I get what you're saying. And yes, I would have liked to have seen it. But I, I'm thinking, what more could they have done than give him the... That same type of story where, you know, it's the second in command that wants to take over the job of the first in command and get all the power that he can. And I'm thinking, well, what more can you do for for a villain? See, I, 
I know, I know. I, yeah, it, it, it's hard to quantify, but I just know it could have been more. Yeah, I don't well, know and what I won't it disagree. Been, but it could have been. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely based agree. based on the casting. If they just cast a nobody, it, then it would have been all right. But again, Lee Pace did phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. He, he fantastic. So we just got the scene, the introduction with Rocket and Groot, uh, voice acting Vin Diesel and Bradley Cooper, who both did. I mean, <laughs> Vin Diesel, three words. <laughs> at one point he, he we, gets a lot of crap for taking this role where he only has to say those three words but he says the hell out of those three yeah words. in different ways it comes across what's funny is that and and this is going to be especially for folks who don't listen to our comic book informer podcast we had an episode a while back where we were discussing the comic book series that is currently running that is for uh, rocket raccoon and it is a very very good fun series that we're greatly enjoying and in one of the episodes it was Groot was sitting around a fire telling a story and so the entirety of the comic book was I am Groot in all of the word panels was I am Groot for different characters saying it because it's Groot telling the story and you have to follow along the story with the the animation or not the animation the illustrations done brilliantly by Scotty Young but you get so much from that I am Groot based on how it said the inflection in so much as they can impart that on uh, on paper and different fonts and different things like that and it gives you a whole new appreciation for that I am Groot and what it can mean and how it can feel and. As, as odd a statement as it is, I would actually tell people, read that issue before you watch this movie even. <laughs> and it gives you that much more appreciation of the dialogue that's in the movie. And again, I, I realize that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. It's, 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 it's an odd thing, but it's so very true. Mm-hmm. And then same thing uh, with Bradley Cooper. Like when they first cast Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon, that was the one I was most worried about because every movie we've seen Bradley Cooper in, he plays Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Like it's the same character. This is the least Bradley Cooper character he's ever done. Like it, it if you hadn't told me it was him, I wouldn't have guessed it was him. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It what's funny is that Oftentimes, when you get a, a brilliant performance, you then are left feeling like that's the only person that could have done justice to the role. In so much as I loved Cooper's performance here, I still can think of other people and think, yeah, you know, like Bruce Willis would have knocked this out of the park. <laughs> There's there there are a few other actors that I think wow they yeah they would have freaking nailed this and it would have been just as good which isn't to take away from Cooper's performance because that was great. Speaking of performances, what do you think about Zoe Saldana for Gamora? I love Zoe Saldana like in pretty much any way imaginable. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> and it's another one of those where of the main cast, she probably got the least depth to her character like it's there but she's kind of the same person at the end as she is at the beginning just a little lighter in tone really yeah like i don't feel that at all i don't know like it's just one of those things like but 
like I've seen her in action roles before, and she has that good combination of a legitimately good actor who can also do the action stuff. So I think she was great casting. I just again, it's another one of those characters I wish had gotten a little bit more development. She went from a murderous henchman and woman who, I mean, here chopping here, down trees. Thing, yeah, her her story arc changed, and but I don't know, it just wasn't like explained very well. She just decided, okay, I'm going to be good now. Like I, it was just a little too volatile. Like wow, it, so it wasn't development. It was just a change. I disagree completely. This is one of the ones that I feel, again, she went from this murderous henchwoman that is willing to kill anybody in her way to get to her ultimate goal to someone that after spending time with this crew of misfits gets so much more relaxed about who she is that she's freaking dancing a little at, at points. Like when you get to the end where the music is put on of the second tape and she cocks her head and listens and there's that just that ever so slight little not dance but little groove with the music kind of thing and here's this person that I don't dance we don't dance and this and that something so subtle there was this massive arc in her personality throughout I felt it's just, it's one of those things that didn't come across very well in the movie, though, if you ask me. Like, a lot of people who watched the movie were like, well, why was she suddenly... Like, it just seems too sudden because, again, you have this big cast. Not everybody is going to get the oh, amount no. of time they need. And for the amount of change her character went through, like, it would have been its, an, it, its own movie. Like, the amount of character development she got instead of, you know, one-fifth of this movie. Yeah. Well, we're going to agree to disagree on that one because I and I will disagree with it. <laughs> that scene with the finger. He <laughs> <laughs> improved a lot of it. I thought that was hysterical. Um, because, again, when you look at everything that she goes through, including the stuff with the, the, the Karen Gillan's Nebula character mm-hmm. um, the, that you see at different points throughout as well, and that, that trying to not save her as well, but, you know, change her and make her realize that there's more and that they can go and try to free themselves and things like that. I, I, I felt that she got more character development than most of the other ones. In fact, that, that she really shined in, in this, like her role was really quite good. Not, not, I'm not just speaking to, towards the, the actress, but the role itself and everything that it entailed, I thought that was, a ton there. So moving on to the, the jail scene here. I love that they had to build this thing. Yeah, that was amazing. I can't believe they built this entire prison. They said that the only way that they could afford this scene is to actually buy all the steel, build it, and then salvage the steel after the scene was done and they were done with all the, uh, the, the, the scene, the, the recording that's insane. Like, you really don't hear that often. <laughs> that much time and effort put into, what, 10 minutes? Is that the only amount of time they're actually here? Maybe 15? That's, that's insane and something nobody else would do. But they did it, and ultimately it worked because I, I, I can definitely see where other studios would have tried to cut corners here. 
and this definitely just feels like it feels this. like a jail cell. Yeah, it it you have that that sense of confinement watching it because it's all actually there. Like they don't have to mat in stuff. It's there. Yeah. Here we are again with music making such a difference with how you interpret a scene. And we get to see how freaking massive Chris Pratt is. Like he was the pudgy guy from Parks and Rec and here he is freaking cut. And they were saying how they had a problem making him look like, look less imposing a figure <laughs> than he actually is, especially when he's doing scenes with Drax. Now, Dave Batista is not a small guy either, obviously, WWE wrestler, but to try to make Peter Quill seem small in comparison to him was a chore because seriously, when they're standing beside him, there's scenes where you see them both and you're thinking, I, my money would be on Chris Pratt in some of those <laughs> fights because my god he's massive there was even a funny joke in the season premiere of Parks and Rec this year where they're like Chris what, or whatever his name is on the show I forget what happened to you he's like well I stopped drinking beer and went to the gym who knew <laughs> <laughs> uh, going back to the work that they put into the jail cell the other actually before, before we get to that uh, we have your favorite person in the world coming up in a cameo right here yes did you know that before they said it I knew he was in it. I didn't know who it was. And like, I actually had to watch the credits and go, oh, he was that guy. I had because no idea. Just like Michael Rooker, Nathan Fillion has been in everything James Gunn yeah. has directed. As a matter of fact, James Gunn probably owes his entire career to Nathan Fillion. <laughs> <laughs> because when they were doing, um, oh God, Slither, the uh, horror movie, they were shooting in Canada. And by the laws of wanting to shoot in Canada, if you want the tax breaks and whatnot, you need a certain number of actual Canadian actors. So that's how Nathan Fillion got his role. <laughs> he happened to be Canadian. <laughs> and, you know, that was really Gunn's first ma major picture, you know, by, by most standards. It's, you know, it was a nothing film compared to Guardians, but I loved that movie. Yeah. So, and it, as soon as I heard James Gunn was going to be directing, my first thought was, okay, who's Nathan Fillion going to be? Because I know they're always in stuff together. And a lot of you know, nerds on the internet get flack for fan casting Nathan Fillion in pretty much every role imaginable. But at the time, I was like, oh my god, Nathan Fillion is going to be Star-Lord. Oh. Because first of all, you have the Captain Mal. You know, yeah. <laughs> parallel. But also at the time in the comics, we had a different interpretation of Star-Lord than we do now. He was the more older, weathered Han Solo type like we saw in the, uh, the Annihilation miniseries where he was leading, you know, the Dirty Dozen type team. So that interpretation of the character, that would have been good casting. Yeah, that would have been phenomenal. But it? this interpretation of the character, I have no problems with whatsoever. None at all. No, but it would have been interesting. Now, that said, I think Fillion would have had to go on a diet. I think the castle's been a little too good to him. <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> He's going the Shatner way, let's be honest. <laughs> I actually had no idea that was him. And and that's too bad because I, I it's... Because he did change his voice a little bit for it, or they changed it because it just did not. I, I still I listen to it now, and it doesn't sound enough like mm -hmm. it. And it has to be one of those things. God, love that effect with God. Robert. That is hysterical. It has to be one of those things where they just didn't have time. Like yeah. he was probably shooting Castle or doing something else. I was like, okay, I can come in for 
six hours one day to do audio. Yeah. You know, that's it. That's your bed. Um, yeah, that scene when Rocket gets up and he's got bedhead. Again, another one of those every time I see this. And I've now seen this movie a number of times. <laughs> I still laugh. And it's nice to hear a gun really push them that he knew exactly what he wanted the look. And, and it's, that's another thing too. He talks about rocket so much during this, the, the audio commentary quite a bit more than any other character, including Groot as well, which is fully FX, but rocket meant the, the world to him. And he really pushed them hard to make rocket this believable character. And it's true. And because of the shape of the, the, the face for the raccoon, they couldn't do any kind of motion capture for it. Mm-hmm. So it had to be something that was entirely digital and then believable as well. And I I saw this movie. We were talking about this before, again, on Combo Book and Forward podcast. When it came out, I went to go see it with a, a buddy of mine down the street. And I saw it on IMAX in 3D, which to me is the only way this movie should be watched. As good as it was to watch at home on Blu-ray, and I'm sure you loved it as well. Again, yeah, I just saw the regular theater version. IMAX 3D made this movie an experience like I I can't even describe it. it. It was larger than life, which is what this movie is supposed to be. And Rocket was so well done that. Again, that large and in 3D, you, this thing was alive. There was no yeah. doubt about it. The character is alive. It, it just worked so seamlessly. And we've talked about Rocket on a comics podcast and how before I used to rag on him and it just was a stupid character and I had no use for it whatsoever. And then now I'm like one of his biggest freaking fans. <laughs> I just <laughs> love this character so much. There are legitimately times I forgot he was CGI yeah, yeah. watching the movie. And the, there is absolutely no higher praise you can give than that. Yeah. Oh, but that was me for the most part. Every time Groot would appear, I'm thinking special effects. I, I mean, you can't help it with a freaking walking tree. It, it's still you, – you're still <laughs> – Meanwhile, on the other hand, you're like, man, that raccoon is a great actor. Oscar. Somebody <laughs> needs to put him on the Oscar list. <laughs> But but it's true. It's with the the tree. You think about it more. But with the rocket, I just I I just was sunk in, and it was like this is a character. And I loved also watching the specials, um, the the deleted scenes and the the behind the scenes where they show Gunn's brother do in the green suit and saying just how important he was to the acting as well to 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 the crew and everything because he would scrouch around. And they also had. Um, a short person on on the staff who did some, but even it was a woman, wasn't it? I believe, or was it a man? I believe it wasn't it was his brother. No, no, they they also used his brother, but they also right. had a short person on staff. But they were too tall, so they had a picture of Rocket's face on their their chest, so that the actors knew where mm-hmm. to look. And I, I believe it was a woman. I wish I could remember, but. Um, but no, they also used his brother because he would actually scrounch down and be the correct height. And they were saying how imperative he was to for the actors and how important because he actually acted it. He didn't just read the lines. He acted it and they, they took a lot of that when they did the the um the CGI then for Rocket, which 
that's pretty high praise right there. Yeah, I mean, it's the amount of effort that went into a talking raccoon. <laughs> In retrospect, you're like, man. But again, the finished product speaks for itself. Yeah, and, and, and tying it back again to the jail, having a jail that is that well-constructed and, and that immersive then allows the actors to get sunk in that much more mm-hmm. because they're in the environment. It, it's real for them. I've never acted. I can't imagine, you know, but it, you hear from them often where the, the environment makes it that much easier for them to become these characters. So then when you have, again, Rocket being done, acted by uh, Gunn's brother and doing such a great job, it, it allows them to get sunk into that role quite a bit more as well. And so here now we have the first scene with, well, not the first scene, actually. He was in a hollow thing earlier as well, but the first real scene with, with Thanos. Um, Thanos is one of those characters, man. Yeah. <laughs> I've read a little... I'll, I'll, I'll lay it out because as the big cosmic comic fan, I read a lot of comics with Thanos in it. And the way I've always said it, I like Thanos as a story point more than as a character yeah but yeah even then he just represents this end all be all bad guy mm-hmm. that can do anything and it's like yeah let's admit this. sometimes you need that one-dimensional just generic threat in comics i disagree yeah. i i disagree because i think of that as lazy writing again because you could just as easily have the end-all, be-all good person. Well, here's the thing. Every time they've tried to give him character development, it's been bad. <laughs> so yeah. Well, and, and I'm not saying, you know, it should be that way, but it's it's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I don't know that they could do a good job. The only thing that I ever liked him in in the comics was when the power was taken away and he was mm-hmm. kind of normal and regretful of some of his choices and whatnot. And... That's the only time I read him that I liked him. Every other time, I was like, oh, come on, buddy. It just doesn't work. Freaking gauntlet with some pretty gems shouldn't make you control. Get used to that. Yeah. So, which is unfortunately probably what we're getting in the next one. They're they're probably going to be working on the Infinity Gauntlet, I'm assuming. Well, we've got, what, four of the gems that we've seen so far? Yeah. Well, I I hate that they're going back to that pool, but it, it makes sense because it's. It's kind of where they uh, have to go. It's what the fans thing expect. With, yeah, with Marvel. <laughs> and it's one of those things where everybody's like, oh, my God, I loved the Infinity Gauntlet. It was so great. And we did this on the podcast. Like, I think it was right after the first Avengers film. I was like, well, if they're putting in Thanos, that's the direction I have to go. So we read the Infinity Gauntlet comic, which I remembered loving as a kid. Doesn't hold up. No. <laughs> whatsoever. No. I read it when I was young as well, and then I, we read it again, and it was like, oh, I, I was not a fan of it initially, even while I was young, and then I still didn't. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's one of those things where I can look at it and say, this as freaking idiotic. Moving on, we're back to the jail cell now, with Groot being a badass. A, a dumbass is also <laughs> rushing their plan and I loved that when you're getting the rocket saying I need this and this and the leg that's that was- one of those gags like there are there's easily a half dozen gags in this movie that are just going to be pop culture icons for years to come yes yeah and the leg is one of them yeah the but the having to rush the plan because Groot wasn't paying attention went and got the thing immediately 
just was. I mean, again, it's one of those where the 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 pacing of the movie is so well done because you're expecting there's going to be some lulls and things like that, but they really throw you off. Here you're expecting, okay, there's going to be some planning time, like a like a heist movie kind of thing, but no, immediately, just boom, action. And this scene with Rocket and the gun is, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that on IMAX and 3D was one of those, oh my God, I need a pause button <laughs> so that I could set this on my wallpaper on every computer from now till forever. <laughs> the um the the rest of the scene when especially when you look at the special effects and the the behind the scenes and things like that and the guns talk about it like this is an insane amount of action going on in the few minutes that are that this is actually happening in and like he was talking about the the complexity of the rest of the movie like having scenes with all of the ships fighting in space and everything like that was nothing in terms of complexity compared to everything that's happening here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do, and I have to imagine with it being a set, you know, they had to actually plan yeah. out this character is here, that character is there, you know, as far as camera angles and whatnot, of just making sure it all makes sense instead of just shooting on a green screen and assuming everything's going to composite together properly. Yeah. And again, when we're, we're going back to the two special effects characters here that would not have been on the screen because they couldn't have Gunn's brother mm-hmm. climbing an imaginary tree. And to. We actually found room in the budget to actually grow a tree in the middle. Yes. Who <laughs> <laughs> would have been cheaper? <laughs> the, but yeah, that they could make it all work so beautifully with the the again. It's it's one thing to have one character that's entirely CGI, but to have you know nearly half of this cast on uh, this team is just make believe. And this is the first scene where you see them all together. As yeah, you have the hero moment with him carrying a prosthetic leg. Yes. <laughs> Which sets the tone then for everything. When you see yeah. them later on as well, and they talked about that, when they're having their right stuff moment where they're all walking in slow motion and Rocket's adjusting his crotch and Gamora's yawning and stuff. And you're going, yep, this is, this is who the Guardians are because that's something that you get throughout the comics as well. That, I mean, they're not good guys. They're not bad guys, and they're not really good at either of them either. <laughs> but then I, I love the scene because it gives so much depth to Rocket, where you know he's not just you know a, an action guy, or you know he's not comedy relief. This shows that as a character and as a member of this team, he is in massively important to how they function. Like they'd still be stuck in prison if it wasn't for him because this plan amazing. Yeah. The, the thing that I like too here is that up until this point, Drax was this very dry character Mm -hmm. by virtue of the fact that that species doesn't get subtlety or sarcasm or anything like that. But also the, in terms of the writing, when you're looking at him, he's that, I lost my wife 
and it's because of you and I'm going to kill you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's not much to it. But then you get this scene where he's talking about how they used to roast <laughs> raccoons <laughs> over a spit kind of thing <laughs> and that not helping. I thought, okay, so he's going to have some comedic potential here. He's going to be actually worth watching. See, we haven't taken a moment to talk about Batista yet because that interpretation of the character isn't even remotely what we've seen in the comics as far as that, you know, that literal slant to him. And I think a lot of that was written in that way because they chose Batista as the casting. Because, don't get me wrong, as a professional wrestler and he has charisma. He has personality. Not a great actor. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Like we saw him uh, last year. He was in the latest Riddick movie. And he was great because he had a simple character, but he had such a screen presence that, you know, it really worked for that film. And same thing here. He's not acting a whole lot, but he's using that natural charisma and that screen presence to really be a larger than life character in this movie. We see that with a lot with a lot of characters, though, or actors, I should say. Mm-hmm. And if if they don't really have a lot of acting chops, if they're smart, they're choosing roles where that's not an issue, and that you know kind of thing. It, it's like we just watched um, Constantine, and not the TV show, but the um, oh the the the, the movie, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> and. And, and now it's it's filming with Keanu Reeves, and yeah. uh, and it's one of those where before he started talking, I turned to the wife and I said, because I'd never actually seen this movie, and I said, oh god, I hope he's not going to do the accent. <laughs> and my son was like, <laughs> why? And my wife said, he's very bad at accents. <laughs> I was like, oh, and luckily he didn't. But it's one of those where you can look at say Keanu Reeves, and someone who is, let's be honest, not the best actor, but there are certain roles that he can do. And he can do exceptionally well. Unfortunately, he doesn't keep choosing those. He keeps choosing these other weird-ass roles, and you're like, ah, oh, for Christ's sakes, stick to what you can do, buddy. So here with uh, with Batista, it, the, the role was tailor-made for him, and so it, it fits. Now, that said, you were saying it's different from the comics. How different from the comics? Well, Drax in the comics is a human who his family, his wife and daughter, or maybe it was just his daughter and the wife had died previously. It, did, it happened in the 60s, so don't hold me to anything. <laughs> Where um, were killed during an alien attack on Earth. And Thanos' father actually resurrected him and created him as this being, Drax the Destroyer, and sort of programmed his mind to be basically a one-man killing machine with the goal of killing Thanos. So for many years, that was his entire character motivation was kill Thanos. And he killed Thanos a couple of times, actually. And just he's he's still a character who doesn't have a lot of depth to him. Like we've seen some scenes, seen some scenes, my God. But over the years where uh, he meets up with his daughter, who was also resurrected as another character, the Moon Dragon. But uh, he, he's never been... A character with a lot of depth. He, he's just like Thanos. He's more of a plot point than a fully realized character of his own. I love just a completely different that that scene with the guard. I love how Gunn was talking about the guard, and the only reason he was chosen is because he's large and imposing and scary looking. That's it. <laughs> no acting chops. Doesn't matter. He just looks like he could beat the crap out of you, and he does. <laughs> 
The other thing that we didn't talk about, which was especially noticeable very early in the movie, but it's actually something that Gunn discusses a lot throughout the show, and I, I believe it's even mentioned during the the uh, the commentary, not the commentary, sorry, the uh, the specials afterwards, is how important the color palette was to this mm-hmm. movie, which is again one of those things where you don't always think about it. It's just something that you take in because you're you're seeing it. But when, especially again, IMAX screen, this movie, in 3D, and you're seeing all of these colors, and I was expecting a very grungy show, like this scene here, where you're seeing, you know, a lot of dark colors, a lot of muted colors, textures, and things like that. But what he was saying, too, is how important it was to have a colorful sci-fi show. So, like, again, going back to that guard being blue, and you have the pink species as well that's brought up several times, and he even goes up on to talk about it, and they're an actual Marvel thing. They're they're, they're real. He's got some deep cuts in this one. Yeah, so... The, the color palette in the show is fantastic. And again, it goes back to talking about the levity in the show, which is important in a Guardians series, but that works especially well here. And so when you're getting, again, that scene at the beginning, which despite all of the dark clouds and everything, you're getting those those spots where you can see the light and different bright pinks and purples and things like that and there's always that contrast between the bright colors and the dark grimy textures and that's throughout the entire show and it again works so bloody well see and a lot of that plays into just the success of the movie because people are like oh it's another marvel movie of course it's going to make a bunch of money and it did but it made way more money than anybody was expecting even the most optimistic so and a lot of that has to do with compare it to a lot of the other big movies this summer you know transformers ninja turtles spider-man in addition to the fact that it was way better than all three of them combined you know those are three properties that should be bright should be colorful should be popping off the screen and in all three of those it's not there it it's just muddy and toned down whereas this is the exact opposite bright colors cranked up to 11 and thrown in your face and people love it yeah yeah and it's something that you again it takes a director that has a lot of courage in what they're doing that they'll do something like that and not just a a lot of directors have it in their head that dark and grimy and and things like that are the only way to go if you're looking for intrigue and and suspense and things like that and that action movies should be like that and that the only colors you should get are the large explosions and things like that whereas gun has the, the 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 balls for lack of a better term to to understand that you can have bright and colorful and still have the same amount of tension throughout because despite the moment of 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 the comedic moments throughout and whatnot there's still an insane amount of suspense through the entire movie i mean speaking of comedy <laughs> <laughs> when the, this was another one that they talked about in the the specials um where Rooker had the earpiece on and they were, and Gunn was giving him all of the lines, the mumbled lines to say throughout. <laughs> and I just thought that was hysterical too. You could see the actor in the background could barely keep himself from laughing. <laughs> and here we have Benicio del Toro. Now, this is actually one of the ones that I will say, I don't know that this was the best casting choice. 
Not because I don't he didn't care. It's good Benicio job. del Toro. Yeah, but I don't know. I just for some reason. Pardon me a second. <clears throat> for some reason, when I'm looking at this, um, I see. It's like when you have a an animated show, and you spend more time thinking about who the voice actors are versus what they're saying. And that's a common problem. With this, all you see is Del Toro, in my for me at least. And so I enjoyed the character less because I'm just seeing Del Toro. I don't disagree, but at the same time, I love Benicio Del Toro. So oh, so do I. I so don't do care. I. Yeah. And, and <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a trade-off for me. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's not the collector. It's Benicio, but... I can also believe that Benicio del Toro is an existing character in the Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have seen him in stuff where it's less noticeable. That's the thing. I can think of a lot of other movies where that didn't cross my mind, where mm-hmm. it was so much that he was so inhabiting the role that it really didn't matter. But this, because the role is so extravagant, for me, whenever you get that, you often see the actor more than the role because they're they're supposed to be pretending to be larger than life. So it was a, it was one of those things where I was watching. It was like I kind of wish they had chosen somebody else for that role. So I don't, I don't disagree, but I'm fine with it. Again, um, and here we have them now on this this station, which actually used to be a large cosmic creature. Now. If I recall, this is something that, yes, it's in the comics now. Was it always in the comics? Um, to my knowledge, the first time it was established was during the previous run of the Guardians in the early 2000s. It's possible it existed before that, but I don't know. Why don't you explain what we're looking at here, the setting? Uh, the setting is Nowhere, which is the severed head of a giant celestial. And we'll see, actually, some of the celestials later on when uh, the Collector is explaining exactly what this gem is. They're basically these immensely powerful beings that might as well be gods of the universe. Now, they're not exactly gods. They can be killed, as evidenced by the fact that one of their severed heads is floating out at the edge of the universe and has basically become a space station for... Everybody that wants to go off the grid. Which I think is freaking a cool-ass setting. It's such a bizarre, out-there concept. It has to work. And, and not just that, but the manner in which they addressed the like all of the people that are there to kind of mine it for whatever mm-hmm. is inside of it. And, and it's like Alaska, like only it, in space. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it works as this, you know, Tatooine setting where you have all the, the, the worst of society is there kind of thing, but in a very packed urban setting as well. That is, again, I keep going back to the, the, that, the, 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 the hive of villainy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it just works so well. And then you have these scenes like this here where they're on a balcony, which makes no sense. They're on a balcony on this edge of space kind of thing. But holy crap, is it ever gorgeous. Yeah. And I mean, and the nebula behind what you're it. saying about colors. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And again, when you, you're looking at it in terms of the scene, these two characters that are getting to know each other a little bit more and it plays on the 
traditional romance that's bound to happen, but is immediately halted as well. And I, again, I, I like the way it worked out. It was a little corny while well, it was a lot corny, but the characters, especially Chris Pratt pulls it off so beautifully too. Yeah. It plays against your expectations for a, a correct ending to the scene for the characters. The other thing that I liked about it too, is again, because of the music and it's, it's looking at how often the it's music... like the most cliched song you could think of for this yeah, scene. Yeah, but it works. It works, and it again it ties you into the importance of the music for the character. And at this point now, it's not just the character, but the characters as well. By sharing the music with them, like earlier when you saw him <laughs> when she screams because <laughs> the music's too. <laughs> Well, this is also the scene that gave us the famous Kevin Bacon story. Yes. Which, <laughs> which yeah. God, that is hilarious. <laughs> yes. So, again, so it was cliche, I, but we keep... confirms, though, Kevin Bacon is a part of Marvel continuity now. <laughs> I would kill for a scene in Avengers 2 where he makes a cameo and they have to save him. Oh, that would be so <laughs> Because funny. he's the famous hero of Earth. <laughs> My God, actually in Guardians 2, that would be hysterical, especially if they didn't play him as Kevin Bacon, but just somebody who's just there, like a freaking bartender or something, (laughs) and he turns around to give him a drink and it's freaking Kevin Bacon. That would be so funny. And then we get to what is for a lot of people their favorite scene in the entire movie. I mean, Undeniably. There's a lot of favorite scenes, but this scene here where you're having the tension between the crew, because they got to know each other. A little, arguably, not a whole, whole lot. And they, because they are such strong characters, each in their own right, the only glue holding them together has been Peter Quill throughout this uh, so far what has happened and arguably the rest of the movie as well. So it makes sense that they were, there would be a hell of a lot of tension still. And the rocket breaking down and after the obvious few drinks that he's had, this was just, when I saw it again on big screen, it was like, you can feel the love that Gunn had for the characters, that especially Rocket, that he would insist on something this potent for him at this point. I would just want to give that raccoon a hug. <laughs> because in, in a movie that's been, for the most part, lighthearted, this is dark. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... It's such a tonal shift that it forces you, first of all, to pay attention to it, but it's, it also has the weight. Like, it's worth it. Like, it's not just, oh, we're going to do some story development now. Let's you know, cut off the funny music and have them talk. It, there, there's emotional depth to it, and because of what we've seen with the voice acting and the, the CGI, you really care for Rocket. Well, up until that point, Rocket is a character that you immediately like a whole hell of a lot. Cosmo. Cosmo. Uh, you, <laughs> the growling kills me. <laughs> um, you immediately like, but now you love him. And that's a big change. That's, that's huge. That, and, and here again, Del Toro, we talked about, um, that's huge because now from this point on, now you're, 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 if you're invested in the story, you're worried for the character. It's like, I don't want anything to happen to this character that he's going to bite it because he's too freaking, I love him now. Mm-hmm. And, and again, in terms of storytelling, that's important. 
Yeah, if you're going to put the goofy CGI raccoon in your movie, you need to make people care about him. Yeah, and obviously they did. Um, so do you have any idea how much I was nerding out over the scene? Oh, Every time everybody. I watch this movie, looking for all the little things in the background. Like, uh, was it one of the Dark Elves from Thor 2 is in here? Of course, Cosmo, who is the greatest character in comic book history. Explain that for people who don't know. Uh, Cosmo is uh, Leica the first dog that was shot into space by the Russians who sadly actually died in orbit because they didn't have a way to get her back. But in comic continuity, she just carried off into space and ended up in a vortex, gained psychic powers, the ability to talk telepathically, <laughs> and is now the head of security for nowhere. And She's a member the of the Guardians. Yes. That scene <laughs> where he drops member. the yeah, ball yes. was hysterical too. That was when there was – that just happened. So that's <laughs> – <laughs> they put it, kept it in. Anyways, going back to Cosmo. Yeah, Cosmo is actually a member of the Guardians. But um, Gunn was saying that as much as he would have enjoyed to put the character in, they already had two fully CGI characters. So they couldn't, on top of that, put in Cosmo as well. But it's also a smart decision because Cosmo is just a dog. Yeah. Like, you can do a CGI talking raccoon because it's not an actual raccoon. Cosmo is an actual dog. So it, it just wouldn't have worked in the same way. But going back, we also have, uh, I saw in here, Adam Warlock's cocoon is in one of the cages, which is, of course, a huge character for the cosmic side of Marvel. And the worms from Slither. Yes. Yeah. Who are now, again, officially a part of Marvel continuity. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah. There's a lot of different things in the crates. That's, again, Gunn was talking about that. Plus, they talked about that on the uh, the specials as well. Different things. That, the, the, oh, Christ, the biggest thing that's, that's theirs. Howard the Duck. Is oh, we don't of, find that out for another hour, Roger. Yeah, but it's in there. <laughs> yes. Actually, no, you do see it earlier, do you not? Really? I, I, I believe you do see it earlier, especially when there's all the explosions. You see mm. a glimpse of them there. So, but yeah, there's a ton. Here. So now going back to the the gems, we got a glimpse of the infinity i'm air quoting here again like you guys can see it gems why don't you tell folks what the infinity gems are the infinity gems are essentially the most powerful artifacts in the universe they're basically the entire power of previous universes condensed down into one small gem uh I don't know if they're going to go down the comic path of each gem having a specific use, like the time gem, the power gem, because as a nerd, I've gone completely insane trying to figure out which gem is which, and apparently I've been wrong half the time. But we see this one here. Uh, we saw one in Thor The Dark World, the, uh, the Aether, which uh, that was the first time it was actually shown to the audiences that, yes, it was a gem because we had the post credit scene of Lady Sif bringing it to the collector and saying that they already had one on earth which of course was the tesseract from Just the avengers pause for one moment mm -hmm. best scene ever <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we have uh this gem the aether the tesseract and in kind of the teasers we've gotten for the avengers phase three they've essentially said that loki's staff from the avengers is also one of the infinity gems uh. So we have four out of the six that have been established so far. Right. So, and then, of course, the gems in Comic Continuity were used to put onto a glove. And See, that's one of those things where initially the glove was just a glove. It was just a way to 
wield all six of the gems at once. And just over time, it sort of evolved for the glove to be an artifact in and of itself. Which, actually, again, a nice little nod, the Infinity Gauntlet is in Odin's treasure room at the beginning of the first Thor movie. Yes, yes, you're right. So I, I don't know if they're going to come back to that or just kind of retcon out that no, that was just a fun little Easter egg. Yeah, I would think probably, yeah. The, again, talking about brilliant use of colors in the movie, I love that the explosion for this is pinks and light purples. Mm-hmm. It's not your typical fire and brimstone kind of explosion, but this beautiful explosion. Again, I keep going back to IMAX 3D. This was just incredible to see on the screen, this explosion of pinks and purples everywhere, and you're just mesmerized by it. It was just, again, a brilliant choice to make for that scene. And this setting in and of itself, though, is important to me because in so many sci-fi movies, we see this perfect vision of the future. Well, personally, I love dirty sci-fi. Yeah, Blade you Runner know, this, stuff. Blade Runner, exactly. But it, it's even more important when you're doing with like this stuff that's off-world or extremely far in the future. Like Something like Minority Report never worked for me because it was too clean. It was yeah. too perfect. If you want me to believe that something has existed for a few thousand years, it needs wear and tear. Like, yeah, okay, somebody's going to sweep up every now and then, but it, it, of course, when you're dealing with uh, something like Nowhere, where it's, you know, your wretched hive of scum and villainy, you would expect it to be a little overly dirty. But we see that for the most part, every set has a different, you know, level to it. Like, of course, on Xandar, where you have a police state, if you will, ruling the planet, everything is perfect and everything is clean. And it's just, it's those little touches that, again, make it more relatable and as realistic as a floating giant god's head on the edge of the universe can be. Well, the thing, too, is that it it can be all of one or the other. So mm-hmm. when you're looking at the scenes where, like this, the fight scene in the alley, there is a ton of grime, and just, it looks worn. It looks like it should look. But then you look at these here, the flying mining things that they're in. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's some wear and tear on them, but they're kept cleaner kind of thing. Yeah, there's, you can tell there's been maintenance done on it, but at the same time, they're still mining devices. That's right. So you're getting the, the, the that it's not all one or the other. You're getting buildings that do look more clean, even if it's just parts of them. These ships that do have the, the it's not all encrusted in grime kind of thing and it's having that again another iconic show scene there with him and his te- that there boom that's that's another wallpaper <laughs> for your computer the uh, but the it's not all one or the other and that's important and what that does again it's again when you're seeing it on an IMAX screen you need to believe that that world can exist that it's you know it makes sense and, and nothing about it despite how ludicrous it is nothing feels out of character or or, you know wrong and that's what this entire planet to me at least was that it's it just in the context of what it is made sense and it looked exactly like like it should there was no point where i as a viewer who can let's be honest be critical at points no point where i was looking at saying well that's just wrong 
Well, that doesn't look right. Never. I would See, and that's, hook, line, and sinker. And that's why stuff like that is so underappreciated. Because if it's right and it's perfect, you don't notice. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if it's wrong, that's all you can notice. But if you do get it right and you know psychologically the movie viewer doesn't notice all that, it makes what's actually happening in the movie that much more important. Yeah. Because they're not distracted by the background. Now, talking about this dogfight going on, here's again using your imagination and having a dogfight between these mining ships and actual warbird kind of things. And I love that they did that and that it wasn't your typical dogfight in space kind of thing and that they had to use the strengths of the mining vessels to break through the other ones and things like that. I really love this, especially when you compare it to the full-on dogfight that you get later on in the movie kind of thing. Right. So if you're going to have two separate scenes that are largely the same in concept, they have to be vastly different in execution to really work. And that's what we got. And the, again, going back to the sky in here, what I love about so many of the space scenes here is that it's not just a black sky with stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I I, I love doing is um, going on NASA and things like that and looking at all of the um, shots that have been taken by the Hubble telescope. And, and you, you realize real fast that there's a lot that is so unbelievably spectacular billions of miles from here that just – our minds could not come up with just imagine that are just these incredible scenes in space that again, aren't just the black with white dots. And you see that here, all of these different nebulas and the different gaseous clouds around and all kinds of different things. And I love that he did that because again, you're getting a, the color that he wanted, but also just a different background that you, that, than what we traditionally see in space movies. Especially since it's nowhere near Earth. Exactly. Like it has to look vastly different to give it that alien aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I keep going back and, and, and I urge people, if you haven't done so, which I know a lot of people aren't into this kind of thing, do some searches. Go to NASA. There's some some sites that are devoted specifically just to the shots that the Hubble telescope has taken, because you might look at this and say, well, that is so fake and things like that. And it's like, no, this is actually minor compared to some of the things that Hubble has taken shots of that are insane. Now here we have the, of course, Peter Quill has to be the hero because that is his, that's his character. That's who he is. But the team has already been cementing more at this point. Now we've had the, the scenes with Groot and, and uh, well, actually that's upcoming with Groot and mm-hmm. with, um, with Drax and, and rocket to a certain degree. But here now we're getting a lot more about Gamora and Quill and what their relationship becomes. Is there ever a point in the comics where the two of those are together? Not in a relationship. You know, it's kind of like in a, you know, a battlefield uh, comforting sort of way, but they've never been 
you know, romantically involved. Let's put it that way. Okay, I didn't. I didn't think so. But again, there's a lot of them that I haven't read. So, of course, after the Jackson Paul comic, really, would you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, for for a long time in the comics, uh, Gamera was romantically involved with Nova, Richard Ryder. Oh, okay. which is why we saw in the uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy kind of side story they did uh, a few months ago, explaining what happened to Richard Ryder because Richard Ryder. Peter Quill, Drax, and Thanos were all locked into a dying universe. And all of them except Richard Ryder came back. So it was basically Gamera tied up Star-Lord and was interrogating him, wanting to know what happened. So, yeah, in the comics, she has occasional casual relationships from time to time, but her romantic interest was Richard Ryder. Okay, cool. Good to know. So here we have them back again with... What do these guys call again? They're, they're not the Ravagers, part. right? 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 So, and uh, and you find out that uh, that's again he's been hunted by them, but we're taken immediately back to the head again with Groot and Drax and Rocket showing up here, and again here's nice what's that? Nice landing. Yeah. <laughs> here we have again more team building and things like that, but yeah. It, it, it's it's funny how in a movie that has so many comedic elements, you can have such profound character moments as well. I mean, the the rage of Raccoon here, especially when he's kicking the grass. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> but, I mean, Drax is like, this is his moment to shine. Mm-hmm. And and even Groot to a lesser degree, where it's like, yeah, he's he's part of the team now. But, man, Drax's scene here is just phenomenal. Yeah, like you said, he doesn't have a whole lot of depth of character, but what is there is translated well. Yeah. The, the scene with the kick in the grass, I swear. There's scenes like that throughout, too, with Groot, where, again, we give a lot of credit to the raccoon, of course, but... Man, there's scenes with Groot where, like, just there where he covers his mouth. It's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. That are, like, by virtue of the fact that it's a giant walking tree doing it makes it that much more hysterical. But it's so well done that it, you buy into it, and it just is great. Again, this conversation. It's entirely one-sided from a writing point of view. But from an acting point of view, it, it's... I, it works. And it's one of those things, again, Drax showing that bit of respect where yep. now he's like, okay, I'm with you guys. But uh, everybody was so surprised by how well Rocket connected with the audiences because, again, he was a joke. <laughs> Even from people who had read the comics were like, what are they going to do with the raccoon? But okay. And, but Eric's like, oh, okay, Rocket Raccoon is like breakout star. But after the movie, like when I was uh, out in the lobby talking with my friends, Groot was by far like the breakout oh, really? character of the film. Yeah. Like they were like, okay, yeah, Rocket was great, but the tree, like Groot, I think made more of like an emotional connection with the audience just because wow. he didn't have dialogue. So he had to come across as an emotional character. Like at the end where, you know, he makes the sacrifice or every time we see Groot, it's entirely emotion. And I think that definitely connected with a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, the scenes that he does have where he shines, he really shines. We'll get into that a little bit more later on as some of them happened. I love, we're on the ship now with Rowan and 
I love one of the scenes where they were talking to to Lee Bays, and he was like, "I love my ship." <laughs> <laughs> the design of the ship is spectacular, oh. and again, is that something that we've seen in the comics? No, not even okay. remotely. Like, I didn't know if the it was entire fresh. interpretation of character of Ronan that we see here is vastly different from the comics, okay. aside from him being blue and having a hammer. That ship is amazing because when you look at it, it's like there's no way in hell this thing can fly. It makes no sense that this thing can fly. But I don't care because the design is so amazing. Just absolutely insane. But then again, it doesn't have to fly. It's a spaceship. Yeah. Well, it has so to So the, the one time we see it in atmosphere... It's one the yeah. task is to fall. So <laughs> does it you know, aerodynamically it, it makes sense. And here we finally have Quill finally standing up for himself. <laughs> and, I, and I love that most people don't need thanks for not eating other people. <laughs> it's just this great again, it's it's one of those scenes where you're I mean Pratt does such an amazing job and Rooker stays straight faced the entire time. It was it's it's also one of those things that Gunn mentioned that when Yondu is the focal character of the scene, it's one character. But like when Quill is talking or when Yondu's just kind of in the background, the facial expressions that Rooker is making do give us that other side of the character. And it's it like when Quill's yelling at him, he's not angry. He shows like he has that little smirk of yeah. respect, like, oh, okay, now you're finally standing up to me. But that's something a lot of people wouldn't notice because the focus of the scene is Quill. Yeah. Well, not just that, but it's giving him an excuse not to look weak in front of his crew. And so it's like, okay, thank you. Now I don't have to kill you kind of thing. And and he does. there's that little smirk there. And it's like, good. That it's Again, it's, it's as the movie progresses and you get more and more scenes with Rooker in them. And more depth of character to realize who, in the sense of the movie, this Yondu character is, then it, it really, he shines in that role. Now, that said as well, I, I can't remember, Yondu is actually in, yes, he is, he's in the comics. Yondu is a little more complex, because Yondu is a member of the original Guardians of the Galaxy, and the original Guardians of the Galaxy are from a thousand years in the future. It was an interesting concept of, you know, let's fast forward a thousand years in the future and have characters that have been inspired by and, you know, in some ways related to the characters we know from the past. And Yondu was basically what if Hawkeye was an alien? So they had to really change him up for this movie because it, if you have two guys using bows and arrows, it's, it's a little too similar for the movie franchise. So they definitely had to change up Yondu. You know, they kept his primary, uh, ability intact of you know having the voice or whistle sound controlled arrows where he would shoot the arrow and then give the whistle and allow it to deflect and move where we they kept that intact in a different way and a lot of people like oh that's not yondu that's not yondu i'm like no it's not yondu the yondu you know isn't going to be born for another thousand years (laughs) this is another character of the same species who happens to be named yondu and within that continuity it's brilliant yeah this scene (laughs) With Rocket ready to blow them up. <laughs> and the whole plan scene that follows this little round table thing where they're they're just kind of talking about the different plans and things like that. Again, one of my favorite scenes in the show as well. I, I Everybody says that. There's so many good scenes in it. But 
everything about it from Rocket's fake laugh thing to the I have a plan, a 12% plan, and and Groot talking and things like that as well, and, and Rocket arguing with him. Everything about it was done so freaking well. Well, I think they were even saying this is like one of the earlier scenes they shot when filming the movie. And I guess the original shooting didn't come across quite the way they wanted. So after they were done, uh, Chris Pratt actually came up to James Gunn and went like, this is, you know, weeks later in production went, I think I can do that scene better. Like he had a better understanding of the character and they came back and basically reshot the scene. And now we have this version of it. Which works. There's another one that they show too, where they, they, more of an extended scene where they show a little bit more. There's not a whole hell of a lot. I actually think that they should have kept what they cut because it was, I thought it was funny. But well, uh, it's just one of those things. The movie has a pretty long running time yeah, as, it, as is. it is. There's a lot of, in any movie, there's good stuff that just has to be cut. Yeah. That, again, see, that's another thing that you get when you are listening to the commentaries from these movies where you appreciate just how much him eating the leaf. <laughs> Again, there's a testament to to Pratt. Like they didn't see this; they're just mm-hmm. looking down. I just it's fantastic. But anyways, they, uh, you you see a lot of that where the directors talk about having to kill their babies and losing different scenes and things like that that they they love, but unfortunately have to get rid of. Like earlier in the jail cell, where the guards are talking. And there was that whole deleted scene where the one guards, one of his lights burns out and he's tapping the light to get it to, to light back up again because they have the three lights for the mm-hmm. Nova Corps on their chest, which again was funnier than hell. But had they kept it in, A, it was, it would have added to the running time and wasn't really required, but also it would have taken away from the comedy of that intro of each of the guardians being booked uh, at the police station or the Novacorp station. So it would have taken away, but it was still funnier in hell mm-hmm. <laughs> tapping on the light on the chest thing. And, and they, I think they also said that uh, before the bar fight, there was another scene of them like, st- you know, drinking and talking that I, I believe Gunn said was like the last scene cut from the movie because it was so great and they all loved it so much, but they had to cut something. And ultimately that was the least, a necessary scene to the movie that they could have gotten rid of. Yeah. So, so here we're about to get finally everybody's grouping together here. Montage time. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and in typical again fashion now for the Guardians, it has to be Rocket who brings the the levity at the the very end of it, which I thought was. I I, I think they said too that was that was actually ad lib the jackass part. Hmm. Was I believe ad libbed by Cooper? I can't remember if it was or not. Whether it is or not, it's, it's again perfect. Yeah, <laughs> because it, and it even kind of cements the public perception of this movie before it came out. Who are these jackasses? You know, yeah. <laughs> who are the Guardians of the Galaxy? And we even see that they themselves don't view the Guardians as they haven't even been named yet. But they don't view this team as anything worthwhile it's you know just kind of thrown together for the hell of it at the moment and by the end of course they're a cohesive unit and they, you know they have respect and at the same time the public has respect for it and they've come to 
you know, really love the team. So it, it's an interesting, like, kind of self-referential nod of like, yeah, we know these guys are a bunch of goofs and it shouldn't work, but we're going to make it work anyway. You keep up with the sales than than I do, comic book wise. How successful has Guardians been since not just since the movie, but with the the rebooted series and whatnot? Honestly, I don't I don't know. No, I really no. only like, occasionally I'll take a look at the sales numbers, but I just look to make sure my favorite series aren't being canceled yet. And <laughs> as long as that doesn't happen, I'm happy. <laughs> I love the design of the ship here as well, too, where they are talking about Gun was talking about that too. Like the the Ravagers are much more tactile about you know how things feel and things like that and that's why despite the fact that it's an advanced society the right way the shirt yeah <laughs> yeah after all the hours that he has to put in for the tattoo <laughs> yeah I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be covering that up either um but as advanced a society as it is they're they're they should be able to have a ship that doesn't rumble and make noise and things like that but because the ravages are so tactile they want to hear that rumbling in the engine all of the panels that you look at are <laughs> freaking <hear> it, <laughs> are very much a you know point and click kind of thing so yeah look at, look at it as a biker club yeah bikers could have nice quiet smooth riding motorcycles but who the hell wants that yeah so it's it's <laughs> i need that guy's eye <laughs> Tying in the thing again with the leg, I thought again. If they would have cut that, I would have been so freaking disappointed. <laughs> it works. So well, well it, it's one of those things where that makes the original joke that much funnier. Yeah. It's like they, they can't cut that. If you cut one, you have to cut both. Yeah. So again, some more scenes here with Rooker being the badass, leading to that that iconic march, right stuff march with the. The crew that is Justin Crotch yawning, everything, <laughs> wiping those. <laughs> it's, it's just all in tone, though. Like it's, it's so many visual gags and like little subtle jokes, but they're never there just for the sake of comedy. I would it's, love to know if they had more takes in fitting with everything. Yeah, yeah, it would have been great. And now we get to see how the Guardians are going to be working with the Nova Corps to try to save the planet and whatnot and the complete shift now in look glenn close. And design glenn close <laughs> we haven't even talked about that they cast glenn close yes. in this movie <laughs> with ridiculous hair <laughs> absolutely ridiculous hair and uh, also uh just a quick aside with uh john c Riley, his character yeah you know he's just you know normal nova grunt but he's actually credited as uh ronan day who is important because Ronan Day was the member of the Nova Corps that crashed on Earth and gave Richard Ryder his Nova oh. ability. And they even said, like, there's so many parallels between the Nova Corps and the Green Lanterns because, oh, an alien crashes on Earth and turns a normal human into a space cop. So, like, they had to make a lot of changes. But I'm really interested to see if they're going to do anything more with his character or if it's just, like, a little nod to the continuity previously because I would love to see an actual like Richard Ryder Nova in the movies or Sam Alexander even. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we see again, when you're looking at things that you miss when you watch this the first time later on, when rocket saves the, the woman, the mother and child on the bridge, you find mm-hmm. out later that's actually day's wife and daughter. So again, things that you pick up later on kind of thing. And yeah, that was a very subtle one. I didn't even catch that until he mentioned it. I Exactly. I didn't either. And it was watching it the second time. And you're like, wow. Visually, again, see these, this fight scene is 
amazing the, the shield on fire there the the obvious Novacore net that comes up later on which is an invention of of, of gun and crew when they decided to do something different but the entirety of this firefight dogfight in space was just amazing so bloody well done mm-hmm. so and and of course you get the character moments with rocket as well and the nova crew especially what's the the main commander's name i can't remember, can't the remember guy's name. either but yeah he's you could tell that he's not very happy about this but especially working working with a raccoon kind of thing <laughs> making the the hamster joke but uh but yeah it, it works on so many different levels and like here you have again you, you you have part of the crew is trying to work their way into the ship to to work on it so you have to have something spectacular there which the blowing up of the whole holy christ and then the crashing inside it, the that excitement has to at least match the excitement of what's happening outside of the ship as well because you've also got the, like he's yeah. playing a video game yes <laughs> Because you got the Guardians, you got the Ravagers, and now the Novacore all working against these Ronin and crew kind of thing. So yeah, the the I I loved the excitement and the rush of this because it's so it's mayhem. It's it's mm-hmm. there's no organized anything. This is just freaking mayhem out there. Well, this is what happens when you let Rocket come up with the plan. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Drax is smiling. He's in the back oh, seat. The, the scene coming up where he's just in like hysterical laughter and just going insane. That was so amazing. Like it, I don't know. Like it just made his character that much more interesting. Like he's been fairly stoic and whatnot, but now we see, okay, this is what he is. This is what he loves. And just that childlike maniacal music. glee was very cool to see. And it came out of nowhere too. Yeah, <laughs> I, the entire theater was laughing so hard. Yeah, yeah, I was not expecting it at all, at all, at all. I was so freaking happy to see that. The again, you talk in terms of special effects. How often have we seen a ship crashing through a hull? Kind of thing it happens all the time, but to have it like you know spinning to this. I can't. I love that. <laughs> but spinning around and taking out all the crew that was. Just like Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, We're going to be having more here going on with Nebula and her sister. How much is Nebula used in in comics? Not at all in ages. Like, remember in the Infinity Gauntlet and the the weird undead chick that stole the gauntlet from Thanos? Yes. Yeah, that was Nebula. That was it? Well, she had existed previously where... Like, she claimed to be Thanos' daughter. She was really more of a space pirate. And that was kind of her punishment uh, for... She's never been anything remotely important to the comics. But if you needed, you know, a random villain from the comics to fill this role, she's a good choice because she at least has a connection to Thanos. And I'm really glad that we know she lives through this film and will probably be showing up in the sequel because... We got very little of her, but it's one of those things where the little bit we did get, she had those subtle, like, you could tell how she's not happy with the way Thanos treats her and things like that. So I really hope we get to see more of her and more development from her in the sequel. Well, not just that, but it's it, it, the the potential for so much more in much 
the same way that there was a potential for so much more with Gamora, and mm-hmm. which we got to see. It's it's like it's far more strained with Nebula, but if it was allowed to happen, it would be really, really interesting. Even if she always remains that villain that is just on the brink of, you know, just just a nudge would be enough to change her her view of what's right and wrong kind of thing or what she wants out of life. Even if it was just that and she never actually became good, she's she's just walking that fine line that makes her such an interesting character. Yeah, then, like yeah. like a wild card, a third exactly. party. You know, yeah. she, she doesn't want to help Thanos, but she also hates her sister. So it's she's never going to be good. She's a complex character. Here we have one of the best Gorgeous. scenes on IMAX in 3D. This was magical there's no other way to describe this when you're looking at this on a large large screen and you're sitting there after the insanity of that dog fight that uh, that was uh, again equally impressive on the the big screen but when you get here and you have this these these fireflies and you're like oh my god and it brings so much more depth again to Groot that it's it, it, you 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 love this character that much more again that just that one scene where he's reaching out and they're coming out of his hand you're like oh my god just gorgeous and this with the monologue <laughs> she's monologuing gets shot down yep. before she finishes rule number one I thought that was freaking hysterical <laughs> <laughs> and so here we have again the scenes between Gamora and. Uh, and and Nebula, uh, coming up not not quite yet, and 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 more badass freaking Rooker. This is where you realize just how badass he actually is. And like when you see him earlier on in a lot of the scenes, he's funny and it's it's kind of yeah. He he's the leader for a reason. He's yeah. earned the reputation. Yeah, this is where you realize oh you really are that dangerous. And it's like wow. And what are these guys? The alien guys? What are those? Uh, nobody. Okay, so they're not. Like they're just generic. Okay, enemy I didn't know number if there was five. A race of something that we weren't. Aware of. I, I think they're they're just kind of like Thanos' minions that are on loan to uh, Ronan because, as we see, he's kind of a renegade from the Kree. So yeah. he he's working with Thanos to his own end. And here we see that uh, yeah, Nebula is a hard chick to kill. <laughs> Again, it's such a, 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 a part, parting from the, the actual comic book character, because, call me crazy, but she can't do that in the comic book. She's not more machine than person. Am I correct? Well, again, she's been dead for a couple decades, to my knowledge. Like, I, I cannot tell you the last time Nebula showed up in a comic book. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I like it. I, I thought it was funnier than hell. Kind of has a Wolverine feel to it that... You're not going to be able to kill this person. <laughs> You're not so going to let us use Wolverine. Well, yeah. <laughs> fine. Just, you know, how are you going to defeat this thing? Yeah, just toss it out of building. Uh, or ship, I should say. And then, of course, the there's the mother and child that get saved by a rocket. Going back to Glenn Close, because you brought that up, and here she is again. That is, again, another one that I was thinking, eh, not the best casting. Simply because... I'm seeing Glenn Close because she's got this ridiculous freaking hair. Like the character herself is not 
that big a deal. She, she's playing it straight up. But she just looks so freaking bizarre. And, and here I am thinking of, you know, 101 Dalmatians kind Finally. of thing. It's, it's, it, they could have cast literally anyone in that role. Like, the Nova Prime is such a minor character to the plot. She's just, you know, generic leader figure. Like, she doesn't do anything as a character that's, you know, necessary to have Glenn Close. Exactly. You know, award, multi-award winning actress cast in that role. Well, it, it, again, it came off as just, let's just book a big name so that we have the name on the poster. Well, we're also getting to that point now where these big name actors are approaching Marvel. Going, hey, we want in on what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like when there, you, there's rumors floating around that Al Pacino has been meeting with Marvel. Yeah, when you look at it that way, of of big name actors who just want a little role just so that they can have fun and be part of something like this, then yeah, that I can I can buy more. Well, that's that's going back to Vin Diesel. Vin is widely known to be a gigantic nerd, despite the fact you know he's buffed out action hero like. He's video games, comics, well, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah. That's all of him. So he wanted to be involved with Marvel. And Marvel's like, okay, well, we have a role for you, but it's not going to be for a few years. And the the common uh, rumor and thought is that uh, they wanted to play Black Bolt in the Inhumans, oh, okay. which would be a perfect role for him. Yeah, no kidding. And so like, he's like, okay, that's great, but do you have anything for me now? I don't want to wait until 2017 to be in a movie. And like, well, how do you want to, how about the voice for the talking tree? And he jumped at the opportunity. <laughs> like, how many, you know, huge actors in Hollywood would be happy to be the talking tree? Going back a few minutes, did you pick up on the fact that that was a Space Invaders homage? No. Yeah, when they all get in their ships and and. And Rocket tells him to aim up and just shoot oh, up. As yeah, 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 that was Space Invaders thing. And this scene here where Groot goes freaking ballistic and turns around and that smile. <laughs> <laughs> I did good. God, I love that. <laughs> but, you know, they just killed off uh, Korath the Pursuer. Yeah. And that's another one where they cast a great actor, oh, yeah. Jimon Honsu, in the role. And for the few minutes he's on screen, he's brilliant. And then they kill him off. <laughs> it's also a funny thing. There are three, or no, four characters in this movie whose functionally, their middle name is The. <laughs> you have Ronan the Accuser, Korath the Pursuer, Drax the Destroyer, and Tavon the Collector. <laughs> yeah. Marvel's not that, known for their originality. It does not get names. any more comic book than that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this is this is one of those things too where if you're just watching it as part of the movie, yeah, it's impactful and things like that. But especially as somebody who reads the comics and things like that, like, that's the freaking Nova Corps. Yeah. What what are they going to do now? Like that's <laughs> the Nova Corps. That's like that's like picture <laughs> picture quite literally almost. The entirety of every country's military forces <laughs> wiped out. That's it. The, the, and, and, and a futuristic military force that protects the planet as well. And boom, they're gone. It's like, again, from the, the movie standpoint, you're watching and saying, wow, that's, that's kind of deep. But from somebody who, to a certain degree, has read the comics, you're kind of like, 
Holy crap! <laughs> that's nuts! Well, that's where, as a comic fan, I get really excited. Because going back to the Richard Rider thing, you know, the Nova in the comics for decades was Richard Rider, a teenage kid who just had this power. And he was, I don't want to say a nobody, but honestly, no one of consequence. You know, he was one of the new warriors, for crying out loud. It wasn't until 2003, I think it was, when the, they did the whole Annihilation event, which is really what kicked off the modern comic era era of the cosmic side of things when the very first thing that happened in Annihilation was they killed every single member of the Nova Corps and the way it's established is that they all share one energy source so when Richard Ryder was the last Nova alive suddenly he had this incredible energy and power and that that's what elevated that character to becoming a very big deal in the Marvel Universe. Ah. So now I look at this, I'm like, well, they just killed off the majority of the Nova Corps. Could this be them building up to, you know, the awesome Annihilation version of Richard Rider in the comics? But it's not explained as such. No. At all. So it's going to be yes. a lot of exposition if they bring that up. <laughs> More exposition than space gods destroy planets with gems. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> See, that's another thing. Like, we kind of looked over that. There are huge bits of exposition in this movie. Oh, yeah. You know, the whole thing with the collector, you know, the bit where they're checking everybody in and, you know, booking the guardians and describing who they all are. But it's all handled in such a way that it's not some guy standing there talking to you. You know, you're never – you're having things explained to you as the as the viewer, but you're never being talked down to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the the thing, too, is that Gunn is not sacrificing the enjoyment of the story for sake of explaining the story to you. Mm-hmm. And that's He's giving important. you everything you need to know and nothing more. Yeah. And making you enjoy it and the fact that it's fun kind of thing. So now we got Rocket now finally joining the, 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 the rest of the crew on the ship. The, um, the scene coming up obviously deserves as much conversation as we can about it because it is i mean it's to the point where gun was saying that zoe uh, uh saldana was in tears and and groot's not even there but yeah. just thinking about what is happening she herself was in tears made herself cry for the scene because this is the scene where groot sacrifices himself and the the, the, the everything from the score which was amazing. Yeah, we talk a lot about the licensed soundtrack, but the actual score of the movie is phenomenal as well. Yeah, and you start to see the actors responding to what's happening as well, realizing what's happening. I mean, Rocket's not even awake enough yet to to grasp it. But and and the like, the cinematography of the branches closing around over her face. So that it's it's closing the scene off, but you're seeing the effect that it has on the character as well. So many parts of this scene were so brilliantly put together that, again, when you're thinking about it in terms of, we know he's coming back later, but not necessarily everybody does. Yeah, the people like who all don't the comic the fans com- knew, well, he, he, yeah. he can regrow. But never, nobody else does, and the and they they did it in such a way that the people these characters don't know either, mm-hmm. and like, like this, not even Rocket, yeah, like this moment where he is begging him not to, like Christ, has that ever hitting you in the chest, the tears and the eyes? Oh my God, this was it's, this was ridiculous. It's impactful, and when you're talking about 
a movie of this magnitude in terms of everything that's happening, the space fights, the everything, there's bound to be important people who die kind of thing. So you want an impactful death, something that it like really blows your mind. And I, I can't think of anything that would have been better handled, a, a better death. Like it was like, oh my God. God, like you're damn near your eyes are watering in the theater <laughs> because of how, again, the rest of the crew is handling it as well. And we've come to love these characters yeah, over the course yeah. of an hour and a half. Like, again, if I didn't know that Groot could come back, I'd have been losing my damn mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because like I said, he, he made a more emotional connection with a lot of the audience than the other cast members did, in my opinion. So... Yeah, he he wasn't a throwaway. You know, he wasn't like the badass. Like he's not. You you would expect Quill or maybe Drax to be the one to you know jump in front of the bullet or something, but not Groot. Groot's you know Groot's the teddy bear. Groot's the, like I said, the emotional core of the team. You there you go. Oh, my, oh god. my god! <laughs> like oh. But again, tonal shift because we don't even have time to accept yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, and and you're seeing everybody else kind of coming out as well, afraid, but some of them accepting that you know that's it for their world. For people who don't understand what, oh yeah, rocket going ballistic, man, oh, but that's brutal. Like that's that hammer just has to touch the ground and the planet's dead, mm-hmm. and, and everything on it. Quite but literally, that's all it takes. Rule number one. Monologue. Monologue. Doesn't anybody watch The Incredibles? Yeah, really. <laughs> we are so talking about that on some episode. We have to. <laughs> well, it's still one of the best superhero movies ever made. Ever made. Yep, definitely. I. This was funny because as I'm watching this in the theater, again, we've, we've seen how many superhero movies. We've seen how many, you know, Kind of these kind of scenes where the, the 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 hero has to do something to to either distract or whatever. Never, <laughs> never this, seen this. Never would have expected this even. But if there is one scene that perfectly encapsulates everything that this movie represents, you're looking at it. The, the reason for this, though, that I also love this so much. Is the deleted scene. The deleted scene where they... The deleted scene is great, but the actual movie version is hilarious. I like the deleted one where they actually dance. They actually have a dance off. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, is that ever freaking funny when you're seeing Ronan (laughs) dancing (laughs) in tracks. I was like, oh crazy. The the set must have just lost their shit laughing laughing after this. So, So now we get... Will grabbing onto it and the the quote unquote team moment where he can't do it all by himself, so he has to work with the team together. The tying it back to the his mom and not holding her hand. It was cliche. Can't even say a little cliche. It's cliched. But I mean, what else are you going to do with not just Ronan, but this goddamn gem. And that's the problem I always have with those gems, too. Mm-hmm. It's like it's larger than life. What can you possibly do that's going to work in any way, shape, or form? And so 
I, I, I could have done without the tying it into the mom bit this year. I really could have. <laughs> but, and just keep it the team. But I mean, talk about freaking, like, again, the special effects here with them all being ripped apart, their skin flying off and everything. And and slowly, one by one, touching. And of course, Rocket grabbing his finger. <laughs> that was like, oh, Rocket, I love you so much. <laughs> Well, it's also funny, like, in retrospect, this scene was in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because this is one of the few times where he actually says the t- the words Guardians of the Galaxy. But how frequently do you see the climactic ending scene of a movie in the trailer? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just it was just the, the one little bit out of context, but I always thought that was humorous. Yeah. And the big final attack line... Again, colors, oh, score, Jesus. like builds up. Yes, like you said, it's cliched, but they pull it off. Like they, it, it was the perfect execution of the cliche. Because in in any story, you're gonna have those moments, but you know what? If you're gonna do it, do it well, and I'll respect it. Yeah, well, that's what we've said how many times on the Combo Podcast. Fine, do the cliches if you have to, but do a good job of it make it something different as well so and this leads into some of again the best scenes especially when because with all that has happened now i mean this crap notwithstanding with the switching of the balls and everything for for yondu but i mean with everything that's happened you forget that they lost a, a crew member and a friend kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so then it leads to the scene with, with Rocket when he's he's kneeling down and Drax comes up behind him and, and sits down beside him and puts his hand on him and, or just starts petting him. And that's something that Gunn talked about a lot too, how that scene meant so much to him and it's one of his favorite scenes. And it's true. I mean, for all of the impact of everything else that's happening here post-major battle kind of thing, the scene with Rocket and and Drax is the scene, the post-fight scene that is the most impactful. Yeah, it's, it's that bit of catharsis that we need after all this drama, after explosions and people dying and dance contests and everything. Like That is just such a human reaction and something everybody can relate to. Like, well, what would you do if your pet was sad? You would pet it on the head. Yes. Yeah. So... And here's the, again, exposition talking about Quill and his old man, and which is an obvious setup to what will be happening in the the second Guardians. Obviously, they're going to be mm-hmm. bringing them back. And I have no idea who it could possibly be within the continuity. Like, I, I there's definitely a whole bunch of names out there, but I can't think of any that would fit within the movie continuity. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be just as surprised as everybody else when it's finally revealed. <laughs> well, for the most part, again, we agree with a lot of the, the casting that's taken part. So I'm going to have a little bit of faith. But uh, yeah, here's a scene with Rocket. It's like, oh, Jesus. Wait a minute. Oh. Whoever Quill's dad turns out to be, that has to be the role they give Kevin Bacon. You know, if he's going to be the funny. Beyonder or Thanos' dad or whatever, that's Kevin Bacon. 
But there you go. I mean, there's a little pause, and, there and too. it just rockets reaction. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing, touching? Uh, okay. okay, yeah. <laughs> God, that scene is. Just, oh my God! And again, there's, there's there's so many like that, and you would not expect it. I mean, let's look back at Marvel movies over the past little while, and some of them have been really quite good. But to say that any have scenes that are that impactful between their characters, whether it's the bar scene with Rocket or that scene there, things like that, it's like, I, I really can't think of any that really moved me that much. Some, yes, were quite good. But to say they moved me that much, I, I honestly can't think of any. Because here's the thing. Look at you know Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the Hulk, et cetera, et cetera. They're all these huge, larger-than-life characters. Like, yes, they all have their flaws that you know make them somewhat relatable. But from an audience standpoint, we can see ourselves in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. As I said, they're a bunch of screw-ups. Yeah. You know, they're 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 not immensely powerful. They don't. They're not billionaires. They're not super soldiers. I mean, yes. I mean, Drax is a little. You know, muscly and whatnot, but they're all so flawed and imperfect That's and human that those scenes definitely make more of a connection with us. Yeah, yeah, it is that that being flawed that draws them to us so much more. The other thing too is that they're not heroes. Like the mm-hmm. fact that they have to be asking this guard if killing somebody is okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of is telling right then and there. <laughs> and it's that fact that you don't know what they're going to do next. And yes, for the most part, you know they're going to be the good guys. But you also know that there's that possibility. And if they have to kill somebody because they have to, they will. And if, if there's something that they really want, they're just going to steal it. <laughs> and that's not what we are. But it's kind of fun to see these people do something that we wouldn't kind of thing. And to But honestly, if we were in this situation, we would act the same. But maybe with less killing, but, uh, you know, stealing a ship here and there, probably. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, if, listen, if you're going to put me out in space and wipe my criminal record and just give me free reign to do whatever I want, there's some stuff that's going to happen. <laughs> you talked about John C. Riley, and it, it's just so important to talk about how great the casting was with him as that friend guard kind of thing, mm-hmm. that that everyday guy that is that's a sign of authority but also that sign of authority that's uh, just you know he's a good guy kind of thing and the casting for him was so phenomenal yeah because he's always been these goofy comedic characters that again i was wondering how he was going to fit in with the tone of what they were doing here but like you said it it gives that character even though we haven't seen that side of him we know it's john c Riley. you know he's just He's lovable. Like, you know he's going to be all right. The scene here where Peter is finally opening up that gift that his mother gave to him at the beginning of the movie. The gun was saying that they actually recorded the voice actress, the the mother. They actually recorded her in a freaking cab. Was it a cab or just a car driving to the Something airport? Something like that, remember. yeah. Yeah, recorded it a few times, a few takes in the back there, <laughs> not in his studio. And Gunn was saying like he was crying at points too just listening to her doing it because it's such a great thing and then of course you got awesome mix number two but it's also one of those things like now we know why it's so important to quill that people call him the star lord 
Yeah. Yes. You know, it's, it's, yes. It, it takes that joke that's been running throughout the entire movie and turns it into a legitimately important character piece. And then here we have Gamora, and I, this is where I was saying, like, this warrior that, that was just this, that has slaughtered so many people. And that just that little shift in the eyes and that little mm-hmm. dance. And you're going, like, the character has changed dramatically over so, the course I, I, of the I'm story. Not, debating that i'm just saying i don't know if we got enough of that actually on screen or if it's just more implied and one of the best songs ever (laughs) ever just works so great here gun was saying he was so happy that he got it and what else could have been better to put into that ball than a little troll that he would actually be happy to get it's not the mm-hmm. crystal, which makes it better for him, less trouble, and now he's got an added little trinket <laughs> for you know his what? Yeah, the, 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 the Infinity Gem may be immensely powerful, <laughs> but how many troll dolls are there in the universe there outside of Earth? Lot. There can't yeah, be a lot. That, that's a priceless artifact. Here's the payoff again with the, the family that was saved by Rocket, which again was something that I, need to, I needed to hear Gunn say it to realize yeah, and then finally the the crew taken off because together. Enough of those pink people that <laughs> yeah, oh. it's hard to identify one from the other at this point. There's Groot, baby Groot. And the, the 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 theater just cheers. Oh at that God, like, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. This was the the moment Groot is back. You're like, oh, everybody loves her shit, and then it leads to what is arguably the best post credit scene ever so great that Gunn said he had to make sure to put it before the end of the credits to make sure that people actually saw it. How are people still leaving the theater early in a Marvel movie? You know what? I actually, I do sometimes simply because I'm with somebody that is getting up to go and so it's like all right, fine. Who wants to sit around (laughs) for five minutes watching credits? I will do that, but more often than not, people I'm with are like, "Eh, let's just go. And here it is. Oh. oh, this is the one that Gunn was saying. This yeah. is Gunn's favorite song. This was supposed song. to be yep. the post-credits bit. Yeah. And so here we have Baby baby Groot dancing, which has led to t-shirts, dancing, voice-activated or motion-activated toys. This is now, like, part of pop culture. And that's huge. Like, when you think about that, like, I mean, to create something that is immediately ingrained in pop culture is is freaking huge and mm-hmm. this has done that this is on keychains it's everywhere did you see the the clip from a comic-con where michael rooker recreated that no they had rooker and dave batista on a panel so they had dave sitting out there on the stage and rooker sneaks up behind him with like a kiddie pool oh <laughs> and that's stands in it and they play the music and he starts dancing that's <laughs> and of course hysterical. batista turns around and he freezes <laughs> Oh, my God. So that is going to wrap it up, folks. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please let us know if you would like to hear us do more of these commentaries for movies. I know that I would be up for it. It does wind up being a longer episode for everybody to listen to. But I like the idea of folks getting a different kind of commentary. I encourage everybody to listen to actual commentaries. Not that ours wasn't an actual commentary, but from the directors and the people involved in the film. But I think that if you find people that you enjoy their banter or you they bring something to the, the conversation that you have not 
considered or heard or whatever, like with us with the comic book slant, it's fun to have a different commentary to listen to while you're watching the show. So again, I really hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. And, uh, and yeah, we will see about doing some more of these over time. Of course, you can go to the site at popcornronin.com. Check out the show notes. You can find us on Twitter as well. Myself, I'm Zen Buddhist on Twitter, and Vince is at Simodian. And uh, like I said, let us know, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. I've got some great stuff planned, some stuff that actually the movies were terrible, but man, it should make for some interesting conversations. And with that, I will talk to you soon. TV and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.